All right, go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Sedaris. Again, if you're new with us, so glad that you found your way into our midst today. We pray. We pray that what we talk about today is true of us. If it's not, come and tell me because we're talking about what it means to represent the Christ, Jesus, who died for us. So uh, before I get into it, I'd just like to pray and, and ask God to send his spirit to illuminate our minds and open up our hearts that our affections might be for Jesus first and foremost. The distractions would be moved away. So would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this community. We thank you uh, for your great plan to not leave us alone in this world, but to draw us together, people from every tongue, tribe, nation of this world, together in the worship of the one true Lord and Savior, your son Jesus. And so we just thank you for making that happen, for bringing us into this space, and for giving us your word, God. You haven't stayed silent. You've revealed yourself to us. You've given us instruction about how to be like you and to reflect your goodness in the world. So we pray that this morning might illuminate our minds, might inform our actions, God, and might turn us into a beautiful picture of who you are, the God of grace and mercy and pursuit. And so give us help. We need help. Send your spirit now in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got a Bible, grab it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As I said in my email this week, uh, we're going to pause from our study in Corinthians. We've got four chapters to go, and we're going to pause to study the Psalms. We like to do this during the summer, the summer of Psalms, and so we're going to do that. Oh, Ryan, you're right. I forgot. We're passing the baskets around so that you can drop your cadre uh, sign up into there if you want to be a part of a cadre. So uh, just give us your name, and, and those will be passing around as we start here. We just want to make sure we don't miss any of those and that somebody's sitting there twiddling their thumbs saying, I signed up for one of those. <laughs> I'm really excited about it. Why didn't anybody reach out? So if that happens to you, please, it was a mistake. Reach out to us and say, why didn't I get signed up in a cadre? Um, so uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll take a break and we'll be in the Psalms through the rest of August and then we'll come back and finish the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth in the fall, which is really exciting. I've told you my favorite chapter in all of scriptures, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. So we're going to get to spend a few weeks in 1 Corinthians, which is all about the resurrection and why that's important and how it illuminates all of the letter to the Corinthians. But today we're in chapter 11, and we get to talk about communion. Communion, also known as the Lord's Supper, also known as the Eucharist, uh, which is this a Greek word that means uh, thanksgiving because of what Christ has done for us. So um, we're going to talk about that. We practice this each and every week at Sedaris. So I hope one thing that happens in the sermon is it illuminates and fills out the meaning of what this practice is. Uh, as I said last week at baptisms, Christianity is pretty simple. There's two things that Jesus says to do if you're one of my followers. One is to be baptized and the other is to participate in the Lord's Supper. So We'll get to look more deeply in that, but not just what this is, or, or, or it's, it's not that important. The church has sort of split over what is this, and Catholics have said one thing, and Protestants have said another, and 
Calvinists have said this, and Lutherans have said that, and, and there's a lot of ink spilled over this. And what I want you to see today is Paul's not really concerned about you understanding exactly what this is. Sedaris, we talk about this as a, as a symbol, a representation of Christ's body and his blood. But the most important thing Paul will say is your heart in taking it. That your heart is the most important part of this. This is like one of the only passages in the Bible that give further detail about how to do this rightly. And so Paul's going to say there's an unworthy way to take this, to do this practice, and there's a worthy way to do this practice. And so it's less about what this is. I mean, this is the body and the blood of Christ. Scripture is clear. But what does that mean? There's some mystery about that. Most importantly, though, is this. What does it mean for me to get to participate in this? So that's what this passage is all about, and we get to look at it together. Now, before I read the passage, I'd like to, I'd like to um, just have you think of a, a, a fun question. Um, have you, everyone's probably been to a wedding. Think about this. This is wedding season in Seattle, so you're probably good chance you might go to a wedding sometime in the near future. Um, when you go to a wedding, isn't it funny one of the things I'm always thinking when I go to a wedding is, I'm going to find out how important I actually am to this couple. And I'm going to know exactly, because I'm going to go up there to the seating chart, and I'm going to look, what table did they put me at, okay? Now, if I'm kind of in the back, far away from the head table, okay, defining the relationship. I understand. You felt like you had to invite me because I was your pastor, and so I get to sit kind of in the back. Very good reason to invite me. Um, so I kind of get to know how do they feel about me, you know? If they put me real close, oh, man, I must mean something to them. So you've had that experience. It kind of defines the relationship a little bit. Um, what's so funny, I went to, recently went to a wedding. You guys remember Callie Turner. She used to be in the band and sing, and she got married a couple weeks ago. And, and uh, one of the things that's happened to me as I become a pastor is I realize, you know, people will put me at a table because they got somebody at the table that they want to be saved. <laughs> so they're like, if we put Pastor Dave there, maybe the conversation, because I know he, he's kind of awkward. He doesn't really good at cocktail conversations, so it'll go deep and fast. And so I had that experience. Clearly, she'd put me at that table to do some work. And I'm like, hey, I'm on vacation. So, uh, you know, we had a nice cocktail conversation. We talked about the weather and sports. It was good. So, so don't do that to me. I unless you're paying me to be there. So anyhow, so you find out, right, because of the seating chart, where you stand in the social dynamic of that person's life. Now, Paul's going to say here, when we gather as the church of Jesus Christ, as representatives of God and his grace, don't do that. Don't create seating charts in the church of God. Don't Gather together around your cliques, your ethnicities, your age groups, your life stage. Don't do it. This is not a picture of the church that God is building. He is building a church that breaks down all of those man-made walls. That is what Paul is going to say. So I just want to be so clear up front. He's saying no wedding seating charts. There is not a hierarchy in the family of God. That's what he's going to say. And he's going to do it in three steps. And so my sermon will kind of be broken down in, in, in three movements. The first, he's going, to, he's going to show them how ridiculous what he's heard is happening 
actually is. So he's going to just, you're just going to rip into him with some irony and sarcasm. It's going to be hilarious. Then he's going to remind us about the Lord's Supper and what that actually means. And why when we remember it as a church, we have to be very careful to, to understand what it is that we're representing. So he's going to go back to the very words of Jesus and remind us of those words and how profound they are. And then he's going to, to finish by saying, if we don't understand that and we keep doing what we've been doing, these are the consequences, and they're severe. This is what, this is what taking and gathering and, and doing the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, this is what's at stake. So that's how, well, so listen to it as I read. I'm going to read the whole, the whole passage starting in verse 11, or sorry, chapter 11, verse 17. You ready? Read along with me if you've got a copy of the scriptures. They'll be on the screen behind me as well. Here we go. Now, in giving this instruction, what he's saying is this next instruction. It seems like the Corinthians had asked him a list of questions, and so he's sort of moving through the questions. Now, in giving this next instruction, he says, I do not praise you at all, (laughs) since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. You're split up. And in part, I believe it. He's saying, that's not hard for me to believe. If you've been with us the whole series, there's a lot of things the Corinthians are doing that are out of whack, that are not in step with the peculiar wisdom of Jesus, which is the title of our series. So he's like, not hard for me to believe. He says, indeed, it is necessary that there be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Let me just pause there. I think what Paul's doing here is he's actually mocking them. There's been a lot of debate about what does he mean there has to be factions among you? Here's what I think he's saying. He's saying, indeed, the the level of immaturity among you, the, 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 the worldliness of you, the way you don't understand the peculiar wisdom of Christ, indeed, it is necessary that there's factions among you because those of you who are so special, who are so elite, you need to be recognized. You need to have your special seat of honor at the table. So he's mocking them. He's saying, of course, in Corinth we need this. Of course, it's irony. He says, verse 20, when you come together then, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So one is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God so much and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? I do not praise you in this matter. That's the first section that he moves on. Four. I received from the Lord Jesus. So now he's going to quote something he received that were the words of Jesus. What I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So he's quoting Jesus. I received this from Jesus, either passed on through the apostles or perhaps through a vision that Paul himself had of the Lord Jesus. So he's saying, remember how sacred this is. And then he moves on. Verse 27. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Serious business. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body, we'll talk about what what is he saying there, what body is he talking about, eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. A euphemism for died. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged by God. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Or actually, I think the better translation is by the world. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, welcome one another. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home before he comes to the church gathering, so that when you gather together, you will not come under judgment. I will give instructions about the other matters whenever I come. <laughs> so what's funny is he's like, I've got a few instructions, and he's like, he got so worked up by it, he's like, I'll tell you the rest later. <laughs> okay, this is how Paul is, is pretty frustrated here, and he should be. This is a big deal. So in verse 18, when he says, when you come together as a church, as Ecclesia is the Greek word. So when you come together as a church, not in a church, the church is not a building, a church is the people gathered in the name of Jesus. So every time you come together because of Jesus, if the reason you're gathering is because he has drawn his saints together for praise, worship, study, whatever, you are the church. So when you come together as the church, make sure there are no divisions among you. Now, the context here is important because the way they came together in worship and praise and study wasn't exactly how we do it now. And that's not to say that the way we're doing it now in 2022 is completely wrong, but it's just good to understand what's happening because you're like, I didn't bring my picnic basket. <laughs> I didn't get, was that in the email? Dave said no. But the way they would gather is they would come together for what was called an agape meal. Agape is a Greek word for love. We see this in the book of Jude. He talks about these agape feasts. Uh, Agape just means love. So love feasts or love parties is what they were called. And they were similar to what would happen in the Greco-Roman world, like a house party. But Christians would do it uniquely because they were gathering in the name of Jesus, and they would take the bread and the wine at some point during the evening. They probably met... You know, Sunday was when they met because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. But Sunday was the first day of the work week. So this would be in the evenings after work. For the Jews, Saturday was the Sabbath. So Jewish Christians would do their Sabbath probably still on Saturday. But then they'd come and gather in worship of Jesus on Sunday and in the evening. So they'd come together. Everybody would bring food, kind of like a potluck. Um, and they'd come together. But there was not unity. 
had come together and there were divisions. And, and the whole thing was set up just like the world's wisdom, not the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So what was the world wisdom? Well, the most elite would sit in the seats of honor. And then the working class, the indentured servants or the slaves, they, they, they actually would probably get their last because they had to work the hardest. They weren't their own bosses. So when they showed up, they had to kind of find room at the outskirts. So I'm going to actually show you a picture of what uh, most, uh, most likely the house churches, again, weren't in like the size of houses we have. They would be some wealthy patron or Christian that had a big old estate and would host one of these agape meals, okay? So I'm going to show um, a couple of different pictures and show you something that would be really uh, helpful for you to see what's going on here. So do we have that? Here's a first picture. So I don't know if you can tell, but um, you see where this, I got two, I got two areas c- circled. The trachylium is on the right here where the T, that's like the dining room. The trachylium was the place where you'd normally eat. And then the atrium here, you see the atrium out here was sort of the covered area. You know an atrium, but this is what it looked like. And it'd be sort of covered, and there'd usually be some sort of like a little pool or nice, nice area. But what was probably happening, most scholars think, is that the high-class Christians, the elites, would sit in the trachylium, the dining table, and they'd get to lounge on the pillows. You've probably seen that. And then all of the non-elites, or once that filled up, the rest of the people would have to sit out here. Now just look at that. If you came to this cohort, <laughs> and it's like, uh, sorry, you're going to have to sit in the other room, because all of us really important people, were, you know, we filled this room up already, and we'll bring you the food and whatever, but you'd kind of do your own thing. See the division? So it's not just a division um, sort of at a spiritual level. It's literally a physical division that's happening, where the lower class sit- the Christians were having to hang out in the atrium, where the, the more elites would sit in the dining room. So we have another picture that kind of shows this same dynamic. Again, we have over here, I don't know how well you can see that, but you can see people sort of lounging on a pillow, uh, you know, feet up. And then uh, most scholars think you had to sit in chairs (laughs) in the atrium probably. You didn't get to like chill out and lay out. Like, and that's, chairs probably weren't as comfortable as these chairs you guys got. Praise God. Okay, so... See, you see what's happening? It's not just sort of a, who am I talking to? It's even to the point of we're in physically different spaces based upon our socioeconomic status. And Paul's going to come in and he says, what? This is what I'm hearing reports about? No. Not in God's church. I can't believe this is happening. And so that's why you see Paul, if you've been tracking with him, every time he gives sort of a tough word, he always starts with, yes, you're doing okay, but you could do better. This one he just says, no praise. There's nothing about the way you're dividing yourselves that I can praise. You heard that, didn't you? He's like, I'm not going to praise you in any of this. You guys are living by the world's wisdom, not the wisdom of Christ. Christ came to tear down those walls. What are you doing? So this is the problem he's addressing, that there's literal physical divisions. And on top of that, the wealthier Christians, with with all the money, and many scholars think at this time, studying other historical documents, there probably was actually um, a drought. 
uh, happening in the area. So food was scarce. Food got expensive. And so the gap only increased on who could afford to bring food and who couldn't. And so just imagine the wealthy people showing up with their giant picnic baskets full of amazing food. And then they'd go and they'd eat. And there's a little interesting word here that's not actually in uh, the CSB, which I read from, but that's in the ESV. And I, and I, I don't know why they, they didn't translate this word, because I think it's so important. But in the ESV, in verse 20, so look at verse 20 with me. In verse 20, where's it goes? When you come together, then it is not a meal, the Lord's meal you eat. It says, um, actually, verse 21. Verse 21. For at the meal, each one eats his own supper. So that was part of the problem, that they were just, they, whatever you brought, you ate. You didn't share with the people that didn't have food to bring. But, but the ESV actually translates it better because there's a little Greek word in there that actually has a time element to it. So the ESV says, when you come together, not only do you eat your own, but it says, one goes ahead and eats. It's like hard to translate. What is, what is it? Here's what I think... Paul's saying, he's saying, because the working class probably had to work later, and the elites probably didn't have to work at all, they're showing up early, and they got their big basket full of food, and so they've already, by the time the other members of the church get there, they're already halfway through their feast, to the point, Paul says, some of you are even drunk before the other brothers and sisters in the faith even show up, you went ahead and eight. Go ahead and eat. Go ahead and eat. We don't wait for them. They'll get here when they get here. Do you see how unchristlike that is? To say because these people had to work late and they don't even have food to bring and we're sitting up here eating our food, drinking our wine, even to the point where we're getting drunk, which we know is, is not right, before they even show up, yeah, just go ahead and eat. How utterly confrontational that is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You feel, you feel it? You feel Paul's anger here? Uh, one commentator called it, it was a theater of discord. Just so many layers to this drama of the worldliness of the Corinthian church. And it got, again, Paul uses humor beautifully here to just mock them. Oh, but of course you need your divisions. You wouldn't want the world to see you eating with the working class. You feel it? You see that the church, in many times and many seasons, hasn't come much further than the Corinthians. You feel it? The theater of discord, the picture that we're painting to the world of what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. And Paul says, no! And I say, no! Not here. Paul says, if you act like this, when you gather together in my name and you say you're taking of my body and my blood and that's why you're gathered, Paul says, you are not taking the Lord's Supper. Did you see that? He says, no way. I'm not even calling that the Lord's Supper. That's something totally else. I'm not going to call that the Lord's Supper. That's verse 20. It is not to eat the Lord's Supper. 
That's not what you're doing if this is how you act. Because this is totally unacceptable for the people of God. He says, you are taking communion in an unworthy manner. So what does unworthy mean? Unworthy mean. He says that in verse 27. The Greek word here for unworthy is actually an adverb, not an adjective. So what, what he's pointing out is, because it's an adverb, qualifying the verb to take the communion, he's saying there's a way to take communion There's a way to partake in the Lord's Supper that is not the Lord's Supper. It's unworthy. So it's not primarily about when he says don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. He's not primarily talking about a feeling of unworthiness. This is really important to get. So when Paul says stop taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, he's not saying taking the Lord's Supper with a feeling of, oh, I'm guilty, I'm, I'm a sinner, I'm wrong. He's actually, actually, that's exactly how you should be feeling, is unworthy of the sacrifice of Christ. So when he's talking, he's an adverb. He's saying the way you take it, the way that you are completely dividing and then still taking it is unworthy. And this is so important to get because feeling unworthy of the sacrifice of God the Son is the right prerequisite for coming to the table. You don't deserve the body and the blood of Jesus. You don't deserve his grace. You don't deserve his mercy. You deserve death. So when we come to the table, we do come in feeling, feeling unworthy, but we don't come in an unworthy manner. The opposite was happening in Corinth. They weren't coming feeling the overwhelming weight of what Christ had done for them. They were coming thinking they deserved something, that they'd figured out, that they had this special knowledge of who God was, and, and it wasn't changing their lives. So we come to the table feeling, yes, I can't believe God would do this for me. I'm unworthy. But the way we come is in the way of Christ, humble, not divided, th- with thankfulness, filling our hearts, overflowing, So if we partake in communion in any number of unchristlike ways, we become a walking, talking, eating, drinking contradiction. We become a witness against ourselves. We become a hypocrisy on skates, rolling around this world as if we are one of Christ's, when in fact we're not. That's what Paul's saying. Because what? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of God's generosity. So being ungenerous while taking and participating in the Lord's Supper is a walking contradiction because this is all about God's generosity. So if we're just hoarding our food to ourselves, eating it for ourselves, not waiting for our poor brothers and sisters, this is unworthy. The gospel is about God's exchange, the great exchange that Jesus gave his life for ours. So it's all about exchange. You feel the exchange in the gospel? And so if there is no exchange happening at the Lord's Supper, at the agape feast, how can you call that an agape feast? That's not the love of God. The love of God is all about exchanging, undeserved exchange. That's the gospel. And if that's not happening when we gather together, this isn't the Lord's Supper, Paul says. 
The gospel is all or the gospel is all about showing us God's heart. God's heart. So being flippant or unengaged at the heart level when we take the Lord's Supper, being unaware at the heart level of our brothers and sisters around us, when the whole gospel is about God's heart and Him revealing it to us through His Son, how can we come to the table if we are unengaged or only engaged intellectually? We have to engage our hearts when we come together and gather and see one another for who we are. Which brings me to, as I said, explaining what he means in verse 29 when he says, the body. So read it again with me. Because there's been a little bit of debate. What is he talking about here? So verse 29. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So we probably want to figure out what he means by the body. Because we don't want to eat or drink judgment on ourselves. So what, is he, what does it mean to recognize the body? This is a key phrase when we're trying to understand what is, what's an unworthy way, way to participate in communion. Now, the debate is, is the body he's talking about actually the body of Christ? Not recognizing the body for what it is? The bread symbolizing the body of Jesus given for us? Or is the body the collective sense of the church, not recognizing the body? You see? This is one of the beautiful things about the word body. Sedaris literally means heavenly body. We are the heavenly body of Christ. And it's both a singular and a plural. <laughs> so, so the scholars debate, which, which is he talking about? Is it that we rightly recognize our brothers and sisters and see them for who they are? Or is it about recognizing who Jesus is and seeing that he gave his life for us? Maybe it's both. I think it's both. I think it's one of the beautiful things about this um, analogy of the body that Paul uses again and again to describe what the church is. That the church is the body of Christ. It's the collection of saints. And it's also Jesus incarnate in the world. So here's what I think recognizing the body should look like. First, look at the language Paul highlights in the liturgy uh, of the Lord's Supper. If you read every account of Jesus initiating the Lord's Supper, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all the Gospels talk about at the Last Supper, just days before Jesus was betrayed and eventually hung on a cross, he took his disciples and he initiated what we call the Lord's Supper, communion. And this is where we have the words that Paul's reciting. But Paul, only Paul and Luke use this little phrase, do this in remembrance of me. And I think we should take the in remembrance of me. I've got a whole little thing here I'm going to tell you. But for the first thing I want you to see about it is that, that I do think you need to, when you come, and you need to recognize that you're coming to worship Jesus in remembrance of his body. So that's the first thing. We do come together. It would be folly. It would be lazy to come to this table and not allow our hearts and our minds to focus in and remember Jesus himself and his body hung on the cross as he took both the physical and spiritual pain upon himself for the forgiveness of our sin. So do it in remembrance of me, Jesus said. So it is his body. But likewise, when we gather together for the Lord's Supper, or when we gather together for um, other parts of, of, 
worshiping Jesus. We should never come to these table elements unaware or lacking recognition or with lazy memory of the fact that each and every person present was also bought by the body and the blood of Jesus. Everybody gathered here who calls on the name of Jesus was bought at a great price. They're part of our forever family. And so to treat them in any way that is less than, below you, not your concern, is itself severe folly. You see that? Because he says, remember me. Yes, what I did for you, but remember I did it for each and every one of you gathered. So how can you come and remember me and not think about what I did lifting up those who were socioeconomically below you? How can you do that? So in both senses, we must come together recognizing the body, the body of Christ and the body of believers. See that? It's dynamic. And if we don't, he says, judgment. So I want to just real quickly here read to you something about this, this, more about this phrase, in remembrance of me. Because I think we say it every week when we come here, and I want to fill out the meaning for you. What does it say when we come to the table in remembrance of Jesus? Sometimes, is it simply remembering just that he died for us? Just remembering the historical event? It's, it's certainly part of it. I think there's so much more to remembering. Is it just like a memorial meal? Like, my sister died in 2007, and every year on the day she died, we get together and we remember her. We remember the accident. We remember how we felt, and we cry together. Is it, is that, is it just remembering that? Is that the fullness of remembrance? I don't think so. I think there's another sense in which we Remember The Old Testament talks about remembering. The Passover meal was all about remembering the Exodus and how God miraculously rescued the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. So, yes, it's remembering the mighty acts of God, but it's also remembering the essence of who Christ is. For example, to say, um, to say that in remembrance of the crucified one who gave up his body to death for his own people so that his blood might expiate or take on and absorb the penalty due, to think that's only remembering a historical event would be too small. It includes that, but then it also looks forward to this eschatological or in the end of time, the salvation that it has won. So it's both past and future. You see that? Both are happening when we come to the table. But yet it's even more than that. Remembering is proclaiming the death of Jesus, and as we always say, and everything that it means, past, present, and future. And it's also taking on the very persona and essence of who Jesus is. So, any Top Gun fans out there? Thank you. Be proud. Thank you. The way Tom Cruise runs in movies is amazing. Have you noticed? I mean, just, just watch it sometime. The intensity with which he runs. Okay. 
big, big Top Gun fan. The new one came out. Very good. Um, m spoiler alert. In the first movie, his wingman, or his uh, co-pilot, Goose, doesn't make it. <laughs> okay, so if you haven't seen it, that's your fault, not mine. So in the second movie, and in the first movie, I mean, Maverick remembers Goose a lot, right? He has these flashbacks, and he remembers Goose. And he has pictures of Goose up on, on his locker and all that sort of stuff. But when he's in that moment of action, in that moment, he remembers Goose, and it's way more than just remembering, oh, that my friend Goose died, and oh, what a good guy he was, and what a friendship we had. It's that he's actually channeling Goose. He says, be with me, Goose, right? That's the sense in which we remember Christ when we come to the table. We are coming to the table to remember the past, what's happened, to remember the future, what will happen, but also in the present to take Christ with us. It's one of the reasons we practice communion every week at Sedaris. We need to remember Christ if we are going to be his representatives in the world. Be with me, Christ, is what we're saying. It's not so much that we're eating the body and the blood of Jesus, it's that we're eating with Jesus when we come to the table. Remembering that one day we'll eat with him in the new heavens and the new earth, at the great wedding feast of the Lamb, Scripture says, but also right now we eat with him so that we might take him and his message and his way and his wisdom into the world. This is what it means to remember Christ. You see, it's so much more than just a memory. It's literally to remember him is to become like him. So I, I, I just want to read this with you. This is what one scholar, Anthony uh, Thistleton, he summarizes it this way. He, say, he, he gives four elements of remembrance. This is, this is a bit intellectual, but um, just read it with me. Oh, well, we'll see if, if all four come up. It says this. It says, remembrance of Christ and Christ's death, one, retains this biblical aspect of a self-involving remembering in gratitude, worship, trust, acknowledgement, and obedience. This is the biblical sense of, of remembering. Two, it also carries with it the experience of being there in identification with the crucified Christ who is also here in his raised presence. So when we come to the table, we're, we're remembering, we're transporting ourselves there when Christ died for us. It's amazing human capacity to be trans, transmitted to another time and another place. We try to be there with Christ when he gave his life for us in the same way he can be here with us in his raised presence because he's not dead. 1 Corinthians 15, he's very much alive. So he is here with us at this table. The third thing, however, still further, it embraces a self-transforming retrieval of the founding event of the personal identity of the believer as a believer and the corporate identity of the church as the Christian church of God as well. What's he saying? He's saying when you come to this table, it's a formative event which gives us identity. This is, this is the table of identity. Where do you center your identity as a human being? Is it at your job? Is it in your marriage? In your friend group? Is it in your, in your hobbies? What is the ident personal identifying factor of who you are? And what, what, what he's saying is, this is it for the believer. To be a believer is to identify yourself with the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the most 
defining personal identification marker you can have, and that's why we come each and every week and remember it. Because it's so easy to forget, right? Who you are. You lose your job. Did I just lose myself? You come on Sunday. No! Christ has still died for you. He still rose from the dead. He now lives and he's present with you. Your identity can never be shaken. But you have to remember it actively. And we, as a collective, he's saying, as a church, need to remember who we are. We're not just a community of people that generally like each other. I can just tell you, I don't like some of you. (laughs) I love you, though. I love you to death. Seriously, I pour my life out. Does anybody watch tennis here? The tennis players always look to the audience, and they they go like this after they win a match. I want to do that to you guys. I love you, but I don't always like you. That's just the truth. So what are we? We are gathered around the body and the blood of Christ. That's the only reason we exist as a community, and it's the only reason I know any of you. It's the only reason I know my wife. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus and his power working in the world that somehow brought us together. That's why we gather. So nothing can divide us because nothing has changed. So if you tell me I can't be a part of this community, I don't like the music anymore. Too much clapping these days. Shut up. Is Jesus still died for you? Has he still raised? Is he still here in power? Then we're fine. Get over it. Sick of it. Not that I hear that a lot, but people generally like the clapping. (laughs) So, you see this? And the fourth thing he says, the fourth thing that happens when we remember Christ is that we look forward to a new possibility for transformed identity opened up by the eschatological consummation. We, we are becoming something new. If you don't come to this table thinking that Christ's death and his resurrection are making you something that you aren't currently, you're missing what's happening. Christ didn't die just so that you could have community or just that you could have forgiveness of sin or just so that you're not lonely on Sundays. He died so that you would become something you are not. He died to change you into his likeness. And if you're not coming anticipating, hoping, praying, allowing him to make you more like him, don't come to this table. You've missed it. I lived in Texas for a a season, a good season, four years. But strange thing for a Seattleite, grew up in Seattle, but to live in Texas, strange thing. Allie almost moved down there when we were dating to go to nursing school um, so that I could go to seminary in, in, in Dallas. But then she found out to go to nursing school in Texas, you had to take Texas state history. Why do you need to know Texas state history to become a nurse? I don't get it. Nobody does. Only the Texans get it. Texans in the room are like, yep, that's right. <laughs> Heck yeah, we don't want nurses not understanding where we've come from, what we've done, what we've endured. So anyhow, what do Texans say? Texans say, remember the Alamo. What are they saying? Think fondly about these people who gave their life to protect a building that really doesn't matter, quite small. Is that what they're saying? No. They're saying, remember who we are as a people. What does it mean to be a Texan? We're people who who do not give up. We fight to the end. That's why we remember the Alamo. Whether it was right or wrong, that's what they're saying. Remember who we are. So when we remember Christ, we say, remember who bought us, what it cost, and who we are. We're his. Don't forget that when you come to the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous Christian 
German dissident pastor who plotted and attempted to assassinate Hitler to save the lives of the Jewish people and others. He had the famous declaration about cheap grace. Don't live your Christian life. Don't take the Lord's Supper as if it's cheap grace. This table was bought at an incredible price. Preaching of forgiveness without repentance is cheap grace. Communion without confession, if you take communion without confessing your sins to God and one another, that's cheap grace. Grace without discipleship, without transformation, cheap grace. Christianity without Christ, it's powerless. Anthony Thistleton concludes, he says this, it was precisely because of a self-centered concern, he's talking about Corinth now, a self-centered concern for honor, status, or your peer group and society, in society, and because of a disregard for the weak, the despised, or the other, that the Lord's Supper had come to defeat its very purpose. For remembrance of Christ and of Christ's death for others entailed identification with the Christ who denied himself for others. Since this remembrance is not mere mental recollection, but a living out of the Christ-morphic individual and corporate identity, the collapse of this Christian identity undermines what it is to share in Christ's body in such remembrance. This is huge. How can we come to this knowing that God Almighty, infinite and powerless, all wise, not needing us, gave his life for us, and yet we sit here with our picnic baskets, eating and getting drunk while others starve to death. Shame on the Corinthians, Paul says. And shame on us if we follow in their footsteps. Let us come and remember the body and the blood of Christ. So what does Paul say to do? He says, so to not be like that, you need to come and examine yourself, he says. Verse 28, examine yourself. Examine yourself. How do I do that? A, am I engaged mind, body, and spirit in beholding of the cross of Christ and what it cost God, what he won for me, Am I giving my devotion and praise and thankfulness in full measure as a response? So, to examine. Ask yourself that question. Examine yourself. Am I here to give all of that and to see the cost? B. Examine yourself. Do I have any unrepentant sin? Is there something in my life that I just won't give up in order to follow Jesus well? Is it some social status? I can't be seen with those people. Is it some holding sin that you just can't kick out of your house? Examine yourself. First, between you and God, for, ask him for forgiveness. Confess to God those things that you know. doesn't mean that you'll be perfect after this. But give them over to him. Say, help me, God. I confess. I repent. Help me change my ways before you come to the table. To not just take his forgiveness without seeking his transformation. So 
Have that conversation between you and God. Also examine yourself between you and your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And if necessary, confess or repent prior to taking communion. Now that, that might look like literally today you need to go say, hey, I've sinned against you. You might not even know this. I need to confess. It might be you take this week off and you say, I'm going to get coffee with this person and explain. Maybe you've been murdering them in your heart. Hating them and they don't even know it. Reach out to them. Examine yourself. Ask for the courage to go and become right with your brother and sister in Christ. So you examine yourself. Verse 33 says this. Welcome one another when you gather together. ESV says, wait for one another when you gather together. What does this mean? It means honor. We talked about this two weeks ago. Honor one another. Think more highly of the other person than you do yourself. Give them your seat. Fill their cup first. Pass them the bread before you eat. When you come together, before you take, make sure you're coming in a place of honor of one another. As more important than yourself. And this is so important. Not to earn God's favor or forgiveness. Not as a test or payment to God. Your prayer of of confession is not a payment to God before he'll give you his grace. It's not a payment to your brother or sister so that you can get God's grace. But it's a faithful reflection of the God who has already paid everything for you. That's so important to remember. I've seen this done or overdone at times too, and I want to make that clear. You can overdo this because you think somehow if I don't over-honor my brother or sister, um, I'm not worthy of the, the Lord's table. No, you're not worthy, period. <laughs> okay, that's so important. You're not worthy, period. But to do it in a worthy manner means that you're honoring. So you could overdo this. Some, uh, analogy I thought of that could be helpful. When we come to the Lord's table, I use the Maverick uh, Top Gun reference. Downton Abbey fans? Downton Abbey? Same crowd, different crowd. Okay, I, I, I like it all. So Downton Abbey, thank you, British. BBC, where would we be without you? It's a show about um, kind of the changing times in, in England where there's still the, the upper class, they don't work or do anything in the lower class. But one of the things I love about the show, there often there's a servant class that lives in other parts of the house and um, they make the meals and they take them up. Um, but then they get together and they have a meal together as the servants. In this world, the king lives upstairs. He's the only one up there. And we are privileged to get to serve him. And then we get to gather together, all of us, every Christian that's ever existed, we're all on the same level, and we eat together at the servant's table. I love that picture. Because, one, they have way more fun (laughs) downstairs than upstairs. I'm not saying serving Jesus is not fun. But there's something beautiful about when we all recognize who we are. We are servants of Christ. And the fact that we have food that he has gifted to us so that we can also have our agape meals and laugh and sing together, it's amazing. So just make sure you don't think that you should be hanging out upstairs. We are all downstairs together enjoying life in God's world. Singing praises to our king. 
serving him in the ways he needs us to serve him. And if we don't, judgment. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because I don't fully understand it. But Paul says literally people getting sick, people getting ill, people are dying because they're taking communion in an unworthy manner. I don't think he's speaking metaphorically. I think honestly this happens. Perhaps if you don't feel sick when you take the Lord's Supper and you know you're in sin, it's because you've been sick so long you don't even know what healthy feels like. Talk to, talk to somebody who's been walking with Christ a long time, who has grown and matured in the faith. They still sin, yes, and they feel sick about it. So I think he's talking literally. Your physical body can become sick. And yes, we all die. So we take it very seriously. What's at stake? The very picture that we paint to the world. Paul says, just be careful that, you don't, that you're not condemned by the world. We are painting a picture of who God is and what his family is like for the world and how we gather together. Be very careful that we don't paint a picture of the world that leaves the world to condemn us. And there's been seasons in our church where the world has condemned us, and rightfully so. May it never be again. Okay, so how do we do this at Sedaris? Okay. There's a reason that we do the Lord's Supper every week. Because we remind ourselves that it's the reason we gather. I'm not saying churches that don't do it every week are doing it wrong. I'm just saying the reason we do it is I need to be reminded every week that this is why we're gathering. Because of the blood and the, and the body of Jesus. We come to sing praise to his glorious name. Why do we do it after the sermon? We do it after the sermon because it's a response to grace and goodness of God not as a way to earn it. So we hear about the grace and goodness of God and we respond by celebrating him. Why do we get up out of our seat at Sedaris? Stations on the side. Why do we do that? It's intentional. We like to show that God's grace compels us to do something. That we cannot receive his grace and just stay immobile. We must act. God has asked us to get up and do his work in the world, to be his hands and his feet. It bids us to come and change. Faith without works is dead. So we do that in how we do communion. But I have to say, there's a way we do communion that fails to communicate everything that God wants it to communicate. The way we do it can feel a little individualistic at times. We used to do this thing when we first started the church. I want to bring it back. I know the pandemic's not over totally, but we used to always hug one another after taking communion. Why did we do that? We did that to remember this is a celebration as a family. This isn't just about you and God. It's about you and God and about you and the whole family of God. So it can be a little individualistic. Find a way to break that. Make eye contact with your brother or sister who's also taking communion. Celebrate with your eyes. We've both been saved by Jesus. Amazing. Figure out a way. Now, it's not in that same vein, it's not always as celebratory as I wish it was. This is the agape feast, the love feast. It's a party. The Corinthians did get that part right. How do we celebrate more? We celebrate the body and the blood. It's not just a solemn remembrance of the penalty Christ paid. It's also joyful exaltation of the God who raised him from the dead. He's alive. So we could do that better. Um, also, we don't have a way in the way we do communion of recognizing that other believers have basic needs that God wants to meet through the other parts of the church. So that doesn't come into fullness when we gather here on Sundays. So what are our countering practices as a church? 
The answer? Talked about one of them. Cadres and cohorts. Cadres and cohorts. This is a time of celebration, a laughter, storytelling. All of this happens in our cohorts and cadres, which would have happened all at the you know, Sunday evening love feast in Corinth. Um, cohorts and cadres are community-focused, eyeball-to-eyeball. And it should be a place where real needs are met. If you have real needs, that you should come together and have those met. Maybe you can't afford food, so when you go out with your cadre, somebody who can't afford picks up a tab for you. This is a tangible way we get to practice what Paul's saying. You know, if somebody just says, oh, I'm not hungry, look them in the eye. I would like to buy you some food. Let them buy you food. It's okay. This is the body of Christ working as it should. Big, big application. When we come together, we either come together for the better, Paul says, or for the worse. It's not neutral. We either paint a better picture of who God is and what Christ has done and what he has bought and what he is building, or we make the picture worse. Be very thoughtful about how you engage in all aspects of our community every time we gather, whether it's on Sundays or in cohorts or in cadres or at baptisms. Wherever we gather in the name of Christ as the church, you either gather for the better or for the worse. You're either painting a better picture of who Christ is and what he's done in his peculiar wisdom or worse. Just know that, and therefore let us never be divided. Rich and poor, educated and uneducated, by ethnicity or citizenship, by age or life stage, by introvert or extrovert, social, unsocial. Let us never be divided in that way, for Christ is one. His church is one. Let us never paint a picture in which people could think the church is just as divided as the world, or worse. God, help us paint a perfect picture. And when we fall short, give us the grace to try harder next time. Who are the haves and have-nots at Sedaris? Of course, socioeconomic is part of it. Probably not like it was in Corinth. But one, th- one thought I just want to leave you with. I think there are haves and haves not at Sedaris. There are those of you who have this kind of connection. You have deep friendships with people. You know who to call if your car breaks down. You have the body of Christ working for you. And those of you, there are some of you who do not have that. You have not yet found that. Here's my challenge to the haves. Don't just look at this as a financial thing. Do you have something that you can share with the have-nots? Can you open up your home? Can you open up your cohort? Can you open up your life to somebody who does not yet have this kind of connection that Christ has won? I'm talking to the haves now. Don't hoard it to yourself. Don't go ahead and enjoy it and hope the others catch up. Wait for them. Bring them along. Pick them up. Make sure they can come and have what you have found. Otherwise, it's not the Lord's Supper. Let's pray.